your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. In today's era, in which employers, even in the nonprofit and government sectors, are increasingly converting what were full-time benefited positions to part-time temp contract work, many people are trying self-employment. And contributing to that, especially in the Bay Area, is that many people dislike corporations. Unfortunately, too many people don't realize that starting a business is not just about having a good idea or even about quality execution. It's also about the nuts and bolts of running a business. The standard book on that is Small Time Operators, now in its 15th edition. Now, I'm self-employed. I'm a career counselor. And I violate every rule in that book. My bookkeeping system, it's simply uh, in a word processing file. I list what I've gotten paid and what's still owed me. And at the end of the year, I just add it up. And with regard to deductions, I put most things on a credit card. And at the end of the year, I simply use the credit card company's annual record to note what's deductible. Things I pay by check, I dump the receipt in the box, uh, a big box, a cardboard box I have in, in my office. And then I use TurboTax to make, prepare my taxes. My checking account... I don't bother balancing, reconciling. I just keep a cushion in there. And if suddenly, and it happened about twice in my life, the balance seemed, wow, well, that seems way low. I looked and I found that someone had gotten into my account, you know, and uh, the bank immediately reversed the charge. Not immediately. It took him a week to investigate. I shouldn't be, I should be accurate here. Uh, but anyway, with me on the line from Mendocino County, probably to give me hell, is the author of Small Time Operator, Bernard Kamarov, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Oh, happy to be with talking to you. I'm glad. Well, as I said, my bookkeeping and banking system violates every rule in your book. You want to tell me to straighten up and fly right? <laughs> well, actually, no, because uh, believe it or not, the, the goal, you know, you really don't actually uh, violate those rules because the, the mission of that book, Small Time Operator, is basically to help people be as simple and basic as they can and still take care of their business. Um, and the bookkeeping, in fact, the, the very first page is called the KISS bookkeeping, as in keep it simple. In a, in a business like yours, the way you explained it to me, where you were consulting with people or providing a, a personal service where mm -hmm. that's your sole income, you have minimal expenses, and most important, you've been doing this for years, mm -hmm. and you really know your business. And so for you, the kind of bookkeeping you described is perfect. It works for you. You can do your taxes. But a whole lot of businesses are not quite that uncomplicated. You know, you got a business with inventory, buying goods, selling goods, repair business that buys parts, all kinds of different parts at different prices, a manufacturer and a craft business got components. Okay, let's stop there. So let's say, for example, I'm thinking about a very kind of a Bay Area, you know, kind of a, a business that many people would feel pleasant about. A bicycle repair. You're talking about parts. Let's say I was running a bicycle repair business with inventory of some parts or whatever. What, and I want to, you know, nobody who starts a bicycle repair business really gives a crap about the business side. They want to repair bikes. They may like customers. They may want to be, they may be green, whatever. But so I really don't give a crap about the business side, but I'm just going to do the minimum so that the government doesn't breathe down my neck and cart me off to jail or whatever. What's the, the typical minimum that somebody like me would need? Well, it, if you're, 
if you want to be able to stay in business, then you got to be able to pay your bills, which means you got to charge your customers uh, enough to make that happen. Sure. If you aren't keeping a record of your parts and what they cost you and the time in there, um, I don't know how anybody can be sure that they're making, earning enough, charging enough for their time unless they're able to look at those figures. And that's the whole goal of bookkeeping is not an end into itself. It's a, a means to an end. So this kind of sounds you like... You have this information if you need it. So it sounds... And if it helps you. And if it doesn't, forget about it. So, I mean, this may be naive, but I, I'm guessing that there are, you know, I'm obviously big businesses, they've got accountants and they're having all these records. But I would guess, for example that there are a hell of a lot of repair businesses simply say, they make estimates like, okay, this part's costing me $10, so I'll charge 20 for it. And my time, I'm going to bill at, uh, you know, 40 an hour, and I'm going to put a little cushion in there. If I think it's going to take me an hour, I'll, you know, I'll, if they want a flat rate, I'll, try, I'll make it an hour and a half or an hour and 20 minutes. Are there a lot of businesses who do that, and is that crazy? Well, they, they tend to, uh, to have a system that works for them and not just the seat of their pants or... They find they don't survive. A real good friend of mine for years owned a stereo repair shop in mm-hmm. Berkeley called mm-hmm. Resistance Repair. I used them. They, I remember they were good guys. He they was were my expert. first tax client. He was my neighbor when I lived wow, down there. Wow, I remember that. And in fact, my book's got tons of quotes from him because he figured out early on that he was going to go broke if he didn't able to figure out what it cost him for parts and be able to look at his invoices because the next time he ordered, the price went up or he had to find a different supplier. And he set up a little booking system. He made it up himself so he could keep track of the money. And that's how he was able to stay in business for so many years. And and then they switched to computers when the uh, stereo business went away. And they did really well. They were really nice people. They were, and they're very competent. I remember walking in there with my stereo, and they really knew what they were doing. But I digress. Um, you know, you talk about computers. So it would seem to me that if I had to do the books and I had to keep record of all this stuff, I would just get QuickBooks and I would do it. And if I was too lazy or too busy, I'd hire some bookkeeper at $15 an hour to put my accounts payable, receivable, and whatever. And that's it. Is that is that too simplistic? It's not simplistic. It Again, it depends on the individual business and how complicated your business is. And the key, of course that I try to point out is it's a step at a time. And you take it into bite-sized pieces and you see, is this working for me? Do I have the information I need? And if not, how can I get it? QuickBooks is a fine program. Um, any bookkeeping system that works for somebody, starting simple and adding complexity as you find you need it, um, doesn't matter whether it's QuickBooks or spreadsheet or pencil and paper, you know, um, Believe it or not, there's thousands of businesses who still do their books with pencil and paper. It's real simple. It's real quick. You don't make these typo errors that you can make in a in a software program. Yeah, and uh, cost you nothing, and uh, nobody can hack it. And the, and the, no battery to go out. No no glitches. No blue screen of death. You know, I actually I went to my dermatologist. I have these little. I spend too much time in the sun, so I have these little actinic keratoses, which are no big deal. So he freezes them off. But I go in there, and she makes the appointment. I go in every six months, and then she makes an appointment. And she's using some fancy software. He's got. A, she's got a pencil, a book with pencil, so she can erase it easily. And she simply is. And this is one of the busiest, most successful dermatologists in the East Bay. So yes, there's plenty of people who are still doing pencil and paper. You know, I want to. Um, 
There have been some cool things in the tax laws for small businesses that I want you to talk about, but I want to invite our listeners to call. So, dear listeners, you're listening to Work with Marty Nemco. I am talking with Bernard Kamaroff. He is the author of the book on small business, on the business side, keeping you out of trouble with the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board and this agency and that agency. It's in its 15th edition. If you would like, if you are running a small business and you've got a question, you've got the guy here. Uh, so, and the price is right, zero. The phone number, <laughs> zero, he's right, not going to charge right. you, right? The phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Um, as I said, there are um, new. There's, first of all, there's something that I just didn't know at all. The, your book, which I, you know, I must admit I didn't read it because it is so detail oriented. I'm such a slacker when it comes to uh, to the business side. Your book, Small Time Operator, it describes all sorts of not obvious deductions that a business can take. For example, you say you can give away up to twenty percent to reduce your taxable income. Explain that. No, that's not quite right. But there's a brand new tax law. And it's a monster law that came in a year ago. It's the one that gave all the billionaires their 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 little gold mine, but it also threw a whole lot of uh, very large crumbs, you might say, at all businesses. And one of the most interesting ones, interesting to me anyway, is the fact that they have this 20% tax deduction, which is that is reducing your income. And the way they do it is <clears throat> up to a certain amount of money, 20% of whatever your business makes as a profit, you can that's you can reduce your taxable income by that amount of money and then figure your taxes on that. Uh, if you're up above 150-some thousand or married, uh, filing up above 300,000, everything changes. But under that, you just figure your profit on your business, you figure 20% of it, then you do your taxes, you figure your taxable income, and you reduce your taxable income by that twenty percent. So that's the and tax. And you figure your taxes, and it's free. It's a gift. Right. You don't have to spend any money. Right. Um, I have no idea why they threw it in there, but I'm sure not complaining. Right. Uh, it's made a big difference to a lot of small businesses because uh, that twenty percent. Uh, it's twenty percent of the income, but you know, with income tax and social security being at, at least thirty percent, that's a uh, you know, several hundred dollars, some people several thousand dollars. Well, it's part of the tax cut. The, yeah, the, and all they have to do is fill in the line on, or have their accountant fill in the line on the form, and then you got it. Yeah, this was the 2017 or 18, whatever it was, the tax cut that that, that the Trump it, administration December 2017, and it came yeah. into effect in 2018, and a year later, people are still struggling to figure it out. Of course. Uh, uh, there's some business... Uh, provisions in there that even the accountants don't quite understand yet. Exactly. Well, it's a full, you know, we, every every year there's new tax law changes and it becomes a full employment act for accountants. Is that That's fair? That's exactly what we call it, the Accountants Employment Act. Exactly. Anyway, I'll give it the phone number. We have calls on the line, but the phone number, if you've got a question about your small business, about the nuts and bolts part, the business side of it, um, especially, you know, taxes, record-keeping, accounting. Uh, I've got the author of the classic book, Small Time Operator. The phone number here at Work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. Let's go to the phones. Welcome to the show. It is your turn on the air. What's your question or comment for Bernard Kamaroff? Hello, it's you. Hello? Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Kevin, long-time listener and subscriber. I'm Great. calling just to thank the author for writing the book. I started a general contracting business in the early 1980s. 
and used his book as the guidance for setting it up. I used pencil and paper ledgers until the <laughs> end of my business, and I just wanted to thank him for writing the book. It broke it down into pieces so you could do it, uh, made it sound doable. Absolutely. Well, oh, that's really nice to hear. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. I think the, the best part of writing that book was hearing back from people, and also that's how it made it to 15 editions. Every time I talked to somebody, and people called all the time, and they'd ask a question, and I realized the answer wasn't in the book, so the next edition, it got a little bigger. Hey, and, Kevin, uh, do, I, do you, could you still use a free copy of the new 15th edition? I've, I'll send you a free... I've got two copies sitting here, and it was so generous of you to call. Could you still use it, or are you, is it no longer relevant to you? Uh, yes, it would be. I can pass it on to somebody. Good. So what I want you to do is, instead of hanging up, when, we, when I say goodbye to you, stay on the line and give your address, your name and address, to Joanne, okay. and we will, I promise, I will send you a copy of Small Time Operator. And I appreciate the humor that was in his book. Humor is always such a great way of educating people. I still remember the Snoopy cartoon near the end. Why do you think the author wrote this book? And Peppermint Patty goes, I, maybe he needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they let me use that cartoon. Uh, I think they charged me 50 bucks to use that cartoon and I kept it all those years. And the Joe's Belt cartoon, maybe you can talk about that. That was a good one too. Well, in fact, that kind of launched the book in San Francisco because I went down to, I was living up here and I went down to the Chronicle and I wanted them to review the book and uh, they didn't want to do it, but they decided that uh, I looked kind of different and they sent me to the Sunday paper editor and they did a whole feature article on me, which was kind of awkward for me because I don't like publicity personally. And they put that great cartoon in that they drew. And overnight, every bookstore had the book in the front window. And uh, that, that article launched that book. So um, I, I was tickled. I'm still happy. I still subscribe to the Chronicle. Do you, okay. do you, Kevin, do you, do, you, do you remember what the cartoon is like? Or, or Bernard, do you, what, can you describe that cartoon? Well, it was a, it was back in the days when all the street vendors in Berkeley were on the Telegraph, and they were kind of wore you know hippie clothes, and they had long beards. And here was the vendor, and right behind him was this accountant-looking guy sitting at a desk in an adding machine. And one said Joe's belts, and the other one said Joe's belts accountant, and they were both sitting there on the sidewalk. Yeah, and. and uh, it was very cute. Anyway, very Kevin, cute. thanks for the call. Don't, don't forget, okay. don't hang up. Just give your address and name okay. and address to join. Um, Thank but, you again. Yeah, you too. Um, Bernard, you said you look unconventional. Are, are you kind of this, you know, we normally think of accounts as somebody with a crew cut and a green eye shade. Do you look more like the Berkeley hippie or more like no, the green I eye shade? No, I never really guy? did look. Uh, I, uh, well, I lived in Berkeley for a while, but uh, somehow the Chronicle decided that that was the image they liked, so they... I went down there in a, a shirt and tie, which I never wear, <laughs> because, I, and they said he came in here in his jeans and his uh, plaid shirt, so they created that image for me, but that's how, you know, I've been up here in Mendocino County most of my life, and uh, and um, it's just a different way of being. People are a little more relaxed. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But my wife was born and raised in San Francisco, and her parents, we visited her parents a lot down there, so I've got a lot of... A lot of love. My daughter, my oldest daughter, lives in San Francisco. She's an artist down there. Everybody's Not a very an good artist business down person, here. <laughs> despite her father. Um, but she loves her art, 
and yeah. she teaches it down there at Merritt College in Oakland. All right, I'm going to go back and make your work again. So you also talked about a, a major change in the tax law that will really help small business that it's also just recently took place, which was that let's go let's stay with our bicycle repair business and it's got some inventory it's got you know chains and uh, derailers and cables and whatever and now apparently thanks to the the tax cut when you buy the inventory for that store those parts you can deduct it right away rather than having to wait until that particular part is sold did i get that right <laughs> uh, yeah and i'm still amazed that 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 was passed, and I find that people don't know much about it. Since the beginning of tax time, you couldn't write off your inventory if your, your, or your parts until they were sold or they became, you know, useless or something. And um, so someone at a store which could spend 50000 $100,000 maybe to stock a store. Right. And, and that's money that they couldn't write off till it's sold, and all of a sudden, for small businesses... Um, they gave you that option, and uh, it op- opened uh, at first thought, gee, I can write off everything real quick, but the trip <coughs> where they trip up is if um, you have so many write-offs this year that you really aren't saving much on your taxes, mm. it would be better to save them for a future year when Got you it. could use the deduction. And so you have that option instead of writing it off at once to write it off the way you always have, and uh, when you go to a tax accountant, they can figure it both ways for you and give you an idea what to do. Right. Whether you take the, you know, take it all and you, depending, you have to project what your likely income is the next year, and then decide whether you're going to uh, take it this year, where you may have a lot of income and you need a lot of deductions, or you can defer some of those purchases if you can. Let's let's talk one more deduction. What's one more significant deduction that many small business owners don't know about? Well, I think they know about it, but um, a, a significant deduction, well, it's not a whole lot of money, is the fact that so many people can now very easily deduct a home, an office in their home, right. even if it's not a home business, if they have an office there. And up until a couple of years ago, you had to fill out all these elaborate forms. There were all these penalties. And they just changed it and said that, uh, you can just deduct five dollars per square foot up to hmm. three hundred square feet. It's only fifteen hundred bucks, but it, you don't have to fill out the forms, and there are no penalties. And being able to qualify is very easy to do. But people have always been afraid home office is going to be a audit. Absolutely, red flag. that was, and I'll tell you know what it was. I have been self-employed since eighty-five. And since and when I started to be self-employed, I got audited three years in a row, asking for my just including my uh, justify my home office deduction. So it was back in I was one of the earlier people to start working from home, and so it was anomalous. And so I got audited three times in a row, and then a year later, even though they got zero money from me, I swear, actually I got a net refund. The, two years later, they audited me again, and my wife, I was freaking out. And my wife went into the IRS building and asked to speak to the boss. And the boss called off the audit because of repetitive audit. But it was a big audit. It really was. Home office was a big audit risk in the 80s. Yeah, and I'm not sure because there's so little money involved. I, I think there were personal issues there somewhere. But because there's been a huge boom in oh, home-based yes. businesses. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when small-time operator first came out, it was considered something inferior, like 
why can't you afford an office? Right. And now, um, I would say 60, 70% of the people who buy their book have a home office. Right. And they're accepted now. Right. Uh, and, and, of course, because of the Internet, they can, they can uh, expand that business out of their home, and it has opened up uh, a tremendous number of people who can start a little business. Absolutely. You save very fortune. little money. And certainly in a business like mine, or business, I don't even like to think of it as a business. I do think of it as a calling. But people would much rather come to my home with my doggy, who unfortunately just died two weeks ago, but would much rather come to my home in my home office, which is homey and warm rather than a sterile office. And I don't have to have, and of course it's green. I don't have to commute. I can sit and, you know, and I have a lot of phone and Skype clients. And yes, so home offices have become accepted uh, across the board. You know, something very interesting, when we, were, we did, the, you know, we, dear listeners, I, we do a, what's called a pre-interview. Um, when I decide I, I might want to have somebody on my show, we, we talk for about 15, 20 minutes on the phone to find fertile ground. And something we talked about, in addition to the book Small Time Operator, way back when you wrote a book on cooperative businesses, co-ops, you called the, the book was called We Own It. And back, that was when many people wanted to start a co-op business as an employee-owned business. But you, this surprised me. You said that interest in co-op businesses has faded. I'm really surprised. I would think that, especially in the Bay Area, the interest in co-op businesses would have grown. Well, actually, the interest didn't so much fade as people realizing that a cooperative business, uh, a legally structured cooperative business, <clears throat> excuse me, had to be structured just like any other business. The, the whole concept of cooperatives, legally speaking, like the Berkeley Food Co-op, uh, does not apply to small businesses. They're mm. very strict state laws. I see. And so most cooperative businesses were either general partnerships, which were, caused a whole lot of problem between partners because they're all legally liable <laughs> to each other, mm. or some version of corporation or LLC. And um, and that book did well for a while, uh, you know, but uh, we went through a couple printings. I think we sold about 15,000 copies, but I think we sold... A, a book to every co-op in the whole country at the time, mm. and um, and there weren't that many more people looking around. Mm. But people call all the time. Can I get a copy of that book? Mm. I only have one copy. <laughs> so, so what I did, realizing that there is still that genuine interest, yep. uh, I added a whole section of Small Time Operator uh, just a year or two oh, ago, I, to, to, I think to the last edition. And I explained, you know, and I took the the best parts that we own it, the the real meat of the co-ops or stuff, and updated it and put it in there. But I also explained to, peop- explained to people the facts of life, that you've got a structure as a corporation to protect yourself, and you've got to follow the regular laws. You can still be democratic. You can still be, you know, have your ideals. You can put them in your bylaws. You can share ownership. But it has to be a strict structure mm-hmm. in order for you to uh, be able to survive and file tax returns. You know, I can still, top of mind, think of some co-ops that are around here, like the Cheese Board, Nobleham Bakery. Um, uh, what else is employee-owned? Uh, where I invest in Vanguard. It's a, it's an employee-owned business. So the, at Rainbow, isn't it Rainbow Grocery, if it's still around, is another one. So and that's just off the top of my head. So I'm, you know, I'm sure they're still around. Well, the ver- my very first distributor when I first came out with the book, was Book People in Berkeley. Oh, yeah, I remember And they that. were one of the prime co-ops, in fact. Right, I remember that. They really, lo- they really loved We Own It. They were helped put it all together with me. And, uh, but they, 
they succumb to a, a very difficult book distribution mm-hmm. is very cutthroat and everything is cutthroat. Everything is cutthroat, dude. Every every field is cutthroat now. I feel you know. <laughs> I know a lot about the rose industry. And you would think if, it ever, if there'd ever be an industry that would be romantic and wonderful, they are as cutthroat as investment banking. Anyway, but I digress. You ran a pinball machine repair business. Now, what give me to, what's a lesson you learned from doing that that might help my listeners who are running a business or contemplating uh, running a small business? Well, that, you know, that was fascinating because it was a hobby, and then I learned how to fix machines, and then... You know, and like so many businesses like that, it turned people wanted to pay me to fix their mm-hmm. demo machines, and and it it taught me to figure out how to pace my time because I would take my good old time and get everything absolutely perfect, and I discovered I had to speed it up and still get everything perfect because mm-hmm. it's all on you, mm-hmm. and um, and trying to so for me it was a lesson in how to produce something that was really quality because uh, those machines are very complicated yeah. and still be able to somebody be able to afford to pay me my, for my time sure and of course it was a sideline business because it didn't really I really couldn't charge as much as I had to put into it I guess the, the most fun part of it was we used to sell pinball machines mm. and I had a little showroom up here in Mendocino County people came from everywhere and I had about uh, maybe 20, 25 machines in the showroom, and people would come in and spend two, three hours mm. and couldn't figure out what to buy. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what can we do? And I think my wife suggested that. So we pulled almost all of them in the back room and only had five or six out there. Mm. And people would come in, and within 20 minutes, they bought a machine. Interesting. And then I'd pull out another one. And uh, as soon as I narrowed their field of, uh, of choices, I... Um, People were much more could focus better, and yep. and so what I learned is that you pay attention to your customers, and you get you you follow what they're up to, and if and stay with them, and give them what they need, and give them a quality job, and they keep coming back. I got to tell you what I just flashed on. When I was a teenager, I played the piano in the Catskill Mountains and at these little crappy hotels, and they had pinball machines there. And as a teenager, I loved them. And I figured, and this was, I, I probably gave you some business. I would take a cocktail stirrer, one of these cocktails, and I would put it, I would stick it up the coin thing and was able to get it to give me free games by pushing. <laughs> this is my memory of a teenager, what, the, the miscreant that I was. I mean, it was amazing that it was that easy. I could just kind of push that up and get free games. Does that surprise you? No, because every machine came in, every one of those coin operators, coin switches were mangled and bent, <laughs> and it was just inevitable that they were virtually destroyed because and i see where people try to break into the machines and and do all kinds of stunts i could tell just by looking and i would i would fix them for people if they wanted coins um but yeah that i don't think you were that unusual <laughs> oh damn anyway last question you live in mendocino county I mean, that had been certainly the epicenter of the marijuana economy, and you told me in the pre-interview that it's changing. Tell me about that. Well, um, you know, when they started, when they legalized pot um, last year, uh, up in the area where people are growing, the price of marijuana just hit rock bottom. It just fell out from the bottom 
um, at least for the growers. Uh, down the city and people going to the new cannabis stores and uh, seeing these newly trademarked strains, they're probably paying more. Right. But as usual, the farmer is always the one that gets Screwed. low man on the totem pole. And, yeah. and what that has happened is that the economy up here uh, has, has been badly damaged financially because the growers um, were used to a free, free ride. They didn't have to do any of these permits and licenses and zoning and following ADA Disability Act laws, and, and they had neither the expertise nor the finances to be able to comply. And it's kind of funny because uh, I run into people now in town who've been up in the woods for 10, 20 years growing pot, and they'll come over and laugh and say, I just bought your book. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, they have no idea how to comply with these rules, and particularly in the marijuana laws that California has, they're very strict on quality and testing and laboratories and so these testing, these middle people, these middlemen with the labs, they're the ones who are gobbling up all the money now, and they're now buying the marijuana from the growers. And the result is our little towns are, are, have been hit very badly at the moment. You know, a 20-year 20 20 uh, party is over, but, you know, they're, they're finding a, slowly but surely, it's been a year now that the the local businesses who are hit real hard, they're uh, they're trying to find a way to survive. They're trying something new, and uh, and I'm really happy with that. That's always been my goal throughout uh, throughout the book is to give them some ideas to help them show the way. And I trust that the, our towns will come back. Maybe not for another year or so. Yeah, so what are, it's very interesting to me. You know, a town like Fort Bragg uh, or Mendocino. Um, what are they doing to replace the marijuana economy? What are some things that are kind of up and coming? Do you know? Well, actually, the marijuana economy is more stronger inland because uh, it's kind of cold over there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <coughs> Fort Bragg, Mendocino has a lot of tourists yep. that they're counting on, and they're pushing that much harder. But it's the because uh, uh, the tourist economy is still doing pretty well over there. But the the regular towns where people live and work. You know the boutique stores, the unnecessary stores, the luxury stores <laughs> right, right, right. are have to re have to reinvent themselves, have to move on to try something new, because people don't have the extra money to throw around, and a lot of people who were marginal anyway, who are just here for the mm-hmm. party, have left, and we have people who have been here for years and years are looking for a way. They didn't save their money, and. Uh, they're trying out the small business. They're actually looking for jobs, and I think um, I think we'll see a very positive thing out of it. You know, there was a lot of, of pollution. There was a lot of uh, chemicals and herbicides that no longer can happen in the legal market, mm. and I think it's going to be good for all of us. I'm sure a lot of people who are big advocates who are here in the Bay Area, particularly, were were advocating legalization. They had bought the PR message that it was, you know, it was something for the people. They didn't realize that big tobacco, which has bought up millions of acres of Canadian land and corporations who are the labs and the middlemen, that they're really supporting big tobacco. The last people in the world, the last thing in the world that a lot of the advocates would think that they were supporting. But a lot of the the legalization efforts were funded by or at least applauded by big tobacco. Uh, kind and of big ironic. corporations everywhere because it takes a lot of money. 
Yep. Uh, I mean, we're in the millions of dollars to have those laboratories to right. test that stuff and to certify it. Yep. And uh, and you know, people, uh, it's now stratified. It used to, you're just a cog in the wheel now if you're part of that business. Yep. Anyway, uh, if there are other small businesses that can be re- that still are small, especially service businesses, repair businesses, all kinds of simple small businesses, if you are going to try to be a little more uh, uh, responsible than my slipshod accounting system, the book and uh, and the, the, the call who called in was just unsolicited. This is not like we we prime the pump or anything. I never do that. Well, I thank him. Yeah, right. The book is Small Time Operator. It's gotten great reviews. Uh, you look on Amazon, it's huge. 15th edition. No, no book stays in print for 20 God knows years in 15 editions if it's crap. So <laughs> so I recommend it to you. Uh, Bernard Camaro, thanks so much for being my guest on Work with Marty Nemco. Well, it was a pleasure. It was a nice evening. Yeah, it was fun. Okay, be well. Bye. Um, now I want to turn to you. If you have, I have, like I said, I have two books. I've given one away to the previous caller. But if you have a work-related problem of any sort, small, especially a small business, you got the first caller who calls in for a workover wants some career advice uh, of any sort, small business or otherwise. Uh, I may not be good at the taxes and the record keeping, but I'm pretty darn good at uh, coming up with business ideas, in making things efficient, marketing, any kind of small business idea. The price is also right. It's zero, zip or not. And the first person to call with a small business question will get a free copy of the new 15th edition of Small Time Operator. The phone number here, work with Marty and MCO and KALW Radio, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. You know, I like to talk about good news. And uh, the San Jose Mercury News, now they don't call it, they call it just the Mercury News because it's serving a much broader area. I uh, had an article just a couple days ago, uh, that big headline, Bay Area Job Market Rockets for Fresh Gains in June. The region now has 4.1 million jobs written by their senior, their key um, business and uh, economics and job writer, George Avalos. Uh, and this is the quote from the beginning. It says, quote, the Bay Area's resilient job market, despite the forbidding obstacles of a brutal housing market and monster commutes, powered in June to fresh highs, a surge. According to the state's Employment Development Department, the employment level represents a record high number of positions in the nine-county region. Quote, Bay Area employers are not seeing any clouds on the horizon, says Stephen Levy, director of the Palo Alto-based Center for Continuing Study of the California Economy. Now, in fairness, while the employment rate is very high, the unemployment rate is low, it doesn't mean that good jobs are uh, necessarily doing very well. There's a hell of a lot of people who are working part-time temp for crap wages without any question. Um, and so, and there are plenty of people who have still given up. So, you know, I, I always like to provide a measure of reasonable balance. So you cannot really say how wonderful the job market is, but it's certainly better. There's no question because always there are people who have given up and there are always people who have crap jobs. But it's certainly true that the unemployment rate is at near a 50-year low and in the Bay Area specifically, not just in tech, but across the board. Uh, according to the Mercury News' article this week, uh, we are at all-time highs in the job market here in the Bay Area. Um, I have talked previously on this show um, offering career tips for people who are starting out. But my advice has kind of been in standard form. I give a list of tips. But there are some people 
who learn better when the tips are embedded in a context. So I've created a composite story that is a composite of real life people, but not it's not one person. I wanted to com- incorporate as many useful tips as I can. So it's a combination of very a number of my clients, colleagues, friends, whatever. So anyway, um, so this person is Rachel, and Rachel graduated with a 3.2 GPA from let's just say San Francisco State University. She wasn't particularly interested yet in, in growing up. You know, she wasn't ready to have a career and that responsibility. After all, then she wouldn't mainly be taking, that is, being taught, but mainly having to produce. So she made only a desultory job search, you know, a kind of casual, half-hearted job search. So she answered some ads with a kind of a formulaic cover letter and resume. She posted a skeletal LinkedIn profile, and she asked, yeah, she asked her parents and her besties if they knew someone who might hire her. The best job offer that that yielded was a part-time temp, 14 buck an hour receptionist position at a ride-sharing company. I guess now with the living wage, probably $15 an hour. Anyway, but she turned that down. So she decided, although she was sick of school, she decided to apply to master's programs in marriage and family therapy. And she got accepted to two, but when she saw that their, quote, financial aid packages consisted mainly of a huge interest-bearing loan, and little discount off the scary sticker price, she decided to look again for a job. But this time, because she was afraid of having to continue living with her parents or with a covey of roommates, she decided to do the job search right. She started by identifying a not-too-narrow or not-too-broad range of launchpad job targets, and that would be mental, for her, she chose mental health paraprofessional work, whether in the government sector or the nonprofit sector or the for-profit sector. She created a solid, this time, LinkedIn profile, including a strong but not hypey headline. It was, Aspiring Mental Health Counselor with a Good Feel for Helping People. And she supplemented that with a summary of her, of what, of her which was, New Psychology BA Seeks to Launch a Career in Counseling. Enjoy helping all people, but with a special interest in anxiety, women, and people with eating disorders. Because she had limited work experience, she highlighted her relevant accomplishments at college, projects and papers she did for courses that were relevant to her career, like having started a speaker's program for the college's psychology club and volunteering at the campus's drug crisis hotline. She included a flattering photo of herself taken by her friend because she knew pictures would look more natural if, a, than if her friend took it than if a, a pro took them. She knew that even mediocre job seekers managed to gin up positive reviews, so she took the time to find three people who would be effusive, and she offered them specific examples from her life to use, you know, for them to consider using in writing the reference. She used LinkedIn, Indeed, and Craigslist alerts to identify and then apply for on-target jobs using a customized letter and resume, and the resume used keywords, of course, that were drawn from the job ad. With her applications, she included the college paper that she had written that she thought would most impress that particular employer. She made a list of quality employers that employ people in her target job, even if they weren't currently advertising for one. She also made a list of everyone who likes her, friends, relatives, professors, even people she hadn't spoken with for a long time, plus those very tenuous LinkedIn connections. And next to each name, she decided how she would contact them, email, text, phone, or just run into them. And next to that on her little spreadsheet, she wrote what she, whether she would pitch that person right then or suggest they get together, like for coffee or a hike or whatever. 
And with each of those people, she would ask for feedback on her LinkedIn profile. She would also ask if they knew anyone who works at her target employers who could open a door for her, plus any other suggestions that the person might have for who she'd speak with. And when a networking contact said they couldn't think of any leads, Rachel asked the person if they'd just keep their ears open. And nearly everyone would agree to that. So she thereby recruited a team of scouts. While the odds of someone having a lead for her at any given moment was small, the chances were much better that over the month, someone on her team would come up with some. And like many people who would rather work than schmooze, Rachel's network was skimpy, so she expanded it, mainly by attending psychology organizations' local meetings and trainings. And there she made the effort to reach beyond her comfort zone to not only start conversations, but to try to deepen them. And that was, of course, to try to develop meaningful job connections, but also to make friends. I mean, I wish I could tell you that all this quickly led Rachel to an awesome job. But what happened in this composite story is common in reality today, even with today's unemployment rate being near the lowest in 50 years. There seems to be ever fewer good jobs available because of automation, offshoring, part-timing, which enables employers to skirt the ever greater government-imposed expenses and rights for full-time workers. And there's an unprecedented number of college graduates, many of whom have inflated grades or have been educated to dislike employers, especially in the for-profit sector, where they call the man. Despite conventional wisdom that networking is the best way to land a job, Rachel, like many people, got her first job by answering an ad. Networking is often more potent when you're trying for a higher-level job. Anyway, she used facts and anecdotes, and her cover letter and resume included those facts and anecdotes to convey that she could do the job well and would not feel demeaned by starting at the bottom. What was the position? A coordinator and intake person for a nonprofit serving drug-addicted people. Now, Rachel aspires to make that a launch pad. Her position as a coordinator and intake person allows her to interact with everyone, from clients to the executive director. So she asks questions, she's nice, and she tries to establish friendships with people on staff. She's also keeping a journal of everything work-related that she's learning, which she plans to submit with her applications for better jobs or for graduate school. She knows that if she wants to stay in psychology, she's going to need to go to graduate school if she can reasonably expect to make more than her current 18 bucks an hour. Now, I've been a career counselor for over 30 years, and I have special sympathy for people starting out today. It is hard to land a good launchpad job in an era in which so many employers can so easily and cheaply post a job ad and get oodles of applicants. It is tough for somebody who's just not a star to stand out. The reality is there's no surefire solution, but I do believe that the best shot is to use the methods I just described in this little mini-talk. So, uh, anyway, I invite you to call. I've got calls on the line, but I want to invite you. There's not too many calls on the line, so you'll, you'll get on. The phone number here, Work With Marty Nemco. If you are, whether you're starting out or you're ending up, or if you've got any kind of work-related question or problem, the phone number here at Work With Marty Nemco and KALW, 415-841-841. 4134. That's 415 841 4134. Let's go to the phones. Welcome to the show. It is your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi, is that me? It is. Hi. Hi, my name's Miri. Hi, Miri. Um, I have a small business that mm-hmm. I've been running for probably close to 18 years now. Um, mm-hmm. It's the landscape business. Yep. And I took classes at Merritt College, and right. I really appreciated your guest, by the way. Oh, yeah, he was good. Those are, um, I have that book. I haven't read, I have like a really old version, someone gave right. me. But, um, 
But my question is... Oh, you get the, um, you get the second copy of the book. Woo! So, so yeah, the new 15th is... So after we finish our call, do not forget, do not hang up, give your name and address to Joanne, and I will send you a the new copy of Small Time Operator. Oh, awesome. Cool. Thank you. Okay, continue. Okay. So, well, what I, where I am right now is that I have my business has almost entirely been word of mouth. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of business, and now Great. with a lot of people buying properties in Oakland, I'm even more busy. Cool. Um, so I want to increase my rates and yep. sort of ramp up my business and expand it, and I'm just sort of, mm, I'm like, I don't want to raise... I don't want to like throw off my longtime clients. Right. Clients I've no, had no, for you like don't. 10, 12, 15 years. Humanity counts. You know, it really does. You don't need to screw your existing customers in any way. So I'm just, I'm trying to figure out like, should I, like, I was thinking about sending an email out to my existing clients yep. saying I'm looking for more clients. I did make a Yelp page and I've gotten a lot of business through that. I've got a better suggestion than that. Two things. Uh, you don't want to ask for more business. That feels pressury. It's doesn't. It's not the way I like to do things. But it is perfectly fine for you to pick up the phone, leaving a voicemail if you need to. Say something like, "You popped into my mind. You were. I uh, really enjoyed working for you, and I love the landscape I created. How's it working? Is it doing pretty well for you?" And that's it. Don't pitch for business. You'll find that that will automatically make you top of mind for them. And if they need more or they could refer you, they will feel good about you. You don't need to pitch for the business. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yes, that totally makes sense. The second piece is the normal best way to expand your business, instead of pricing usuriously, would be to expand. Do you do irrigation? There's a lot of profit in the irrigation comp- component. Um, I do. I don't do the 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 plumbing part of it, but I run drip lines, which I work with, you know, like a irrigation specialist who puts in the valves and all that. Right. So, but what if I said one of the ways to do to increase your profits is to bring that in house? You don't have to hire this irrigation spe- plumbing specialist, but as when you're bidding, instead of just referring it out to this guy, you've that's fifty or hundred dollar an hour work. Why don't you include that in your bid, and then when you get the bid, you contact that guy and you pay him or her their hourly rate thereby you're going to be getting more business and more money what do you think about that right well the part of that is i don't want the liability because the in my current sort of category of reality i'm only responsible for like if the plant dies or you know what i mean so if i don't want to be um like i don't have i don't carry insurance for Mm. plumbing so i feel like i would have to I'm I not see. a contractor. All right. I don't have okay. a, Fair that, enough. Kind of, that kind of a licensing. Then the, uh, then but the I guess the, the, main, the main thing is that I want to, um, I'm doing more and more design work. Right. And so I want to, and as I'm getting older, I don't want to do as much of the right. physical work. I want to be doing more directing and more designing um, and, the, and how to like increase my rates. Do I just do it and tell people it's all? <laughs> right? uh, I not, guess because it's been so word of mouth, I yeah. feel like people... No existing customers, it's, no increase in rate in existing customers. New customers, try, you don't go wild. Try a 20% increase, and if you're worried about losing potential new business to competition, what I would do is clearly, uh, if your your niche seems to be home resales or new homes, have you done enough to build relationships with key realtors in your target areas? Mm-hmm. Um, that will be a great source of referrals. So when that when it's a realtor who specializes, say, for example, in investment properties, if you were to target, make your goal every week to reach out to three 
uh, high-volume realtors in your target areas who specialize in commercial properties Mm -hmm. and either, whatever feels right, either throw a party, quote, garden party, or simply meet for them for coffee, Mm-hmm. or send them some an email or chat them up on the phone or give them a free plant that is really cool mm-hmm. something to target those people and that plus a, say a 20% increase in your prices for new customers should mm-hmm. do make you more money and also of course cuz design is a higher paying thing than planting gardenias um mm-hmm. you're going to make more money by as you pitch yourself you don't de-emphasize the installation piece, but you emphasize and lead with the de- your, your full service, your design build, if you will. Yeah. How do you feel about that as the plan? Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely something. The one thing, I've done some work for realtors, and I, it's, it tends to be a little rushed for, you know what I mean? Like there's not a real person that you're communicating with. So... Um, the, the, my favorite clients are people who bought their house, you know, a couple of years ago, and they're finally getting around to gar- putting in a garden. Yeah, you know what? So I'm going to say so no. They know what they want, and I and I get to develop the garden. Yeah, that feels a little picky. You know, to, their that, to f- needs. I got it. To find those people would be too tough. If you you say you want to make more money and work less, it seems mm-hmm. to me a little bit of a rush job ain't going to kill you. Yeah. Um, I think you, your your most likely source is those realtors or the people who they refer you to. Now you mm. could, if you want, if you're more meticulous, you could certainly go to the agents and say that your first choice are the high quality leisurely gigs. Right. Uh, and but you'll also take the rush jobs as well. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, in life it's very important to ask for what you want. So you can ask, you can say, my first choice is design work for com- for for customers mm-hmm. who want quality and are not in a rush. But you also can do quick work, and of course mm-hmm. you c- you're entitled to charge more right. for quick work. Like if I needed a printing job done and they have two days, they're going to charge me one rate. If I need it done in an hour, they're going to charge me another. Does right. that does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I've, so I've. In this in this realm, I'll have one more question. I'll let you let you okay. go. But um, the I I have a really hard time not charging by the hour, just because that's what I'm comfortable with. Right. So I'll all people will ask for an estimate. I'll give them an estimate, and I am consistently coming out several thousand dollars less than the estimate because then I do time and materials. Right. And I like I guess it's like a guilt thing, but should I? <laughs> Should I just stick with my like give them a a bid and stick with that? Are you saying you're you're and it's ending up taking you longer than you anticipated? No, it's taking it's, it's taking I'm you shorter. Up doing it faster, okay. and more efficiently than the bid. I yeah, no, you should. I'm trying to be generous because I don't want them to be disappointed that they Mary. You've been doing it 20 years. You've learned efficiencies. Those efficiencies are part of your expertise. I would bid the job at a at at that at not no people hate time and materials because they think you're screwing them. Right. They think you're going to work extra slow. People love the security of a bid. Mm-hmm. And since you with 22 years you're probably an expert at, at bidding and estimation. So mm-hmm. make it a bid that is that gives you a little more money but still is is fair to them. So let's say right. in in let's say you're 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 normally expecting $100 an hour. Um and you think it's going to take you 5 hours. So uh tr- and and so give them a bid for uh you know uh for for $600. They for they're going to get uh they're not going to pay that much more. 
they're going to they're going to get peace of mind and you're out of there in five hours and you're making a little more you're making essentially almost a twenty percent more than the hundred dollars an hour you were charging. Does that make sense? It totally does. Yes. Okay. Thank so <laughs> I appreciate you calling work with Marty Namco. Okay. Be well. And I'll stay on the line. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Good for you. That's right. We'll get you a small time operator. All right. Okay. So we only have a few minutes left, so I want to share a couple of uh, time-sensitive summer things. Um, first, you know, summer is a time people read. I don't know if we go to the beach, but we have more time to hang out. So I made a list of 12 books th- um, that uh, my clients and I have found helpful in self-improvement. And because I'm a... Uh, anyway, I'll just I'll list them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Okay. So a book I really love is a book called Change Power by uh, Meg Selig. Um, despite being a self-help writer myself, I view askance a lot of self-help writing, but not this book. It favors the tried-and-true practical over pop-psych nostrums. For example, the book suggests rehearsing your upcoming day, like this. Conjure up any people or situations that might trigger a lapse and imagine yourself coping successfully. After you've made it through the day, have a talk with yourself. How did you do? Jog your thinking by filling in these blanks. I like that I blank. I wish I had blank. I could strengthen my plan by blank. That book, Change Power, subtitle is 37 Secrets to Habit Change Success. And that implies that those tips are kind of atomistic. They're standalone suggestions. In fact, they're presented in a sequence that could well comprise an overall step-by-step plan for improving your life. Change Power, love the book. Second is is an old classic. Uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's not going to teach you anything new, but it's going to, it's useful reminders. A lot of stuff we know and we just don't remember to do them. The Seven Habits, in the end, can actually reduce to just three. The first is have a personal vision that you'd be proud to aim for. Actually write it down. Two, seek first to understand what the other person's needs are and their problems are, and only then to try to make yourself understood. And then number three, Keep learning. Those are obvious, but as I said, they're too often not done, so they're useful reminders, and the book is written in very plain English. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Third is another very old chestnut, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Now, I chose to not look back at the book before I'm presenting this to you so that I could mention only what has stuck in my head all these years. In sum, it's to get what you want, you have to give people what they want. And what most people want is to feel good about themselves and to get their problem du jour solved. That book was written in 1936 and it sold more than 15 million copies. And today, its Amazon sales rank is still, among self-help books, number 13. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Next, there's a companion book that most people don't know about, written by Dale Carnegie, called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And my favorite page in that is uh, is it's called Part One in a Nutshell. And here's its essence. Rule one, live in day-tight compartments. That is, don't think too far, don't stew about the future, just live each day. It's, sounds like a, a, a formula for you know, like being in the moment, Buddhist. Rule two, the next time trouble with a capital T backs you into a corner, ask yourself, A, what's the worst that could happen if I can't solve my problem? B, Prepare yourself to accept the worst if necessary. And C, calmly try to avoid the worst. A little easier said than done. And rule three, 
remind yourself of the exorbitant price to your health that you can pay if you worry excessively. The next book I really like a lot for your summer practical reading, Reading with a Purpose, is a book called Three-Minute Therapy by a therapist, a practical therapist named Dr. Michael Edelstein. The book helps readers create a customized three-minute exercise, which, if you repeat daily within a few weeks, often significantly reduces anxiety, at least mild to moderate anxiety, and depression and substance abuse. Three-minute therapy by Michael Edelstein. Next, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. This novel is derided by many people as sufficiently, insufficiently, considering external factors that could militate against a person's success. But many of my clients, and me, uh, I, I guess, who have read that, that story of an architect who triumphed over powerful individual and societal forces, we found it empowering that we needn't necessarily be the victim of externalities. It's also an enjoyable read, a quick read. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Uh, the Myth of Male Power. It's written by the unofficial leader of the men's rights movement, Dr. Warren Farrell. That book provides solid support for the many men who feel unfairly targeted because of their gender. If you're a more academically oriented reader, you might want to read a book called Legalizing Misandry, that is Prejudice Against Men, by Drs. Paul Nathanson and Catherine Young. Then there is um, uh, The Giving Tree, and the book that inspired, I'll just say The Giving Tree. It's a, although it's a short picture book, ostensibly for young children, it explores the question of how much to sacrifice for love. And finally, a book I'm currently reading. Uh, it's called My Exaggerated Life by Pat Conroy, who wrote The Prince of Tides and The Great Santini. Um, his father was a monster, an alcoholic who beat Pat nearly constantly for essentially nothing and unpredictably. Pat never knew when his father would, when his father would go off. But despite a childhood poisoned by that and additional travails along the way of his life, Pat's been able to become not only a highly successful author, but create a life that has ended up, as the publisher's summary put it, filled with family and friends, as well as love and happiness. And that is Work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and, of course, all of you for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover, plus the case for cranking, the case for slowing down, and the case for throwing in the towel. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. <laughs>